This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. This is Jordan Moorhead, and this is Austin Real Estate Investing. Today, we have Corey Older here, and he's going to tell us all about his experience investing in real estate in Austin. Hey, Corey, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So real quick, Corey, could you tell everybody who you are and how you're involved with real estate investing in the Austin area? Sure. Uh, my name is Corey Older, uh, president of River City Capital Partners. Uh, River City Capital Partners is a development firm that a partner and I founded, I guess, about five or six years ago. And we started off as an urban infill developer, mostly doing scrapes and in, in, in new builds in the South Lamar, Zilker, Martin Hills area. And um, since then have really transitioned to commercial projects, primarily multifamily. And so uh, are in the midst of um, recently broke ground on a, on a large multifamily project called Urban East in East Austin on Riverside, which is a um, 518 unit uh, multifamily. And then we've got a 300 unit one that is um, break ground uh, near year end uh, in North Austin. And uh, yeah, continue to grow the firm. And so our involvement in, in Austin invest, investments are um, usually in the form of development, but we also do various land plays. For instance, our North Austin deal, we um, bought about 70 acres and um, we'll sell off about 50 of those acres and retain 20 acres. So we, we're also making various land plays um, to acquire um, our land and kind of feed the development business. Awesome. So, hey, it sounds like you started high-end development or higher-end homes, and now you're doing multifamily development. Am I right there? Yep. Awesome. Yeah, we we actually started off doing a lot of like duplex deals, uh-huh. um, uh, duplex, or we you know we bought like an acre of land and. Um, We'd subdivide it and do um, do a whole bunch of duplexes on it, or we get it rezoned and do you know little home communities. So anywhere from some just single family high end, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. some duplex deals, and then you know some like ten home communities, kind awesome. of varied. So with the duplexes, were you actually building duplexes that were kept as rental properties, or were you building duplexes where you sold each side? They're all spec homes for sale. Um, everything we did was um, uh, for, for sale. Okay. So do you guys build and sell or do you build and hold anything? Well, when we started off, we those were all build and sell. Um, all the apartment complexes will obviously be rentals. Uh, and we are on those, we will both do merchant deals uh, where we're selling it and um, some long-term holds are two projects that I referenced happen to both be in opportunity zones oh, cool. and with the opportunity zone legislation, your benefits to get the full suite of benefits, you really want to hold for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so in both of those projects, 
um, we, along with our investors, will be um, 10 year holders or, or longer. Um, in general, just like personally, I, I really believe in Austin. I think it's a very strong economic engine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess we're all a little biased being here. <laughs> yeah, of course. But it seems like there's also like a lot of evidence to back up that bias um, when you just look at the job creation going on and, and what's happening in our city. And so I, I, you know, I'd much rather angle towards a bigger long-term hold than a, you know, short-term cash out, you know, not to say that we don't occasionally do those, um, but we, we, we like, we like the idea of holding for the long-term when we can. Yeah. Those opportunity zones are sweet too. So for everybody listening, could you explain a little bit more about what an opportunity zone is um, and where they are in the Austin area? Sure. So opportunity zones are easiest to explain through an example. Um, if you read the actual like tax guidance, it's easy to get kind of lost. Yeah. So imagine you, Jordan, bought um, Tesla stock. You put a million dollars into Tesla stock, um, I don't know, a couple years ago, let's say. And let's say it's now worth $2 million, although I guess a million dollar investment probably be worth a lot more. But let's just say yeah. that uh, you're... Your Tesla investment for a million is now worth two million, mm-hmm. and you decide to sell today. You would have a million dollar capital gain, right? You bought for a million, sold for two. You have a million dollar capital gain. You would um, be in this million dollars. You'd be in the highest tax bracket, and so you would owe current as current tax rate. Sounds like they might be changing, but yeah. current tax rates would be twenty three percent on that, and so come. April 2022, you would owe $230,000 on your million dollar capital gain because you, you sold it. If you take that million dollar capital gain and instead invest in a real estate development or a company or some type of active trader business located in certain designated census tracts called opportunity zones, then you get three benefits. Number one, uh, and they have all these dates assigned to them. Um, and one of the dates is in 2021. So number one, if this happened in 2021, since we're in 2021, you'd get a 10% discount on that capital gain tax that you owed. So instead of 230,000, you'd owe 207,000. You'd get a $23,000 discount. So that'd be the first benefit. Second benefit is instead of that 207,000 being due April 2022, you'd basically get a, um, what is that? A uh, five-year deferral. You wouldn't have to pay it till April 2027. So um, that's your second benefit. And then your third benefit is the big one. If you hold the project or your investment for 10 years, then, and let's say that million-dollar investment that you invested in, in the project turned into $3 million. When you sell... Um, in 10 years, you don't have to pay any capital gain tax at all. Your, your, your investment gets marked up to basically the sales price. And so that's a big one. You end up with a tax-free return on your, on your original investment. So when you put those three together, it's, um, it's a pretty sweet deal for, um, for investors. As far as locations, um, there's a bunch of maps out there. 
um, some of the hot areas in Austin down by kind of by the airport near Tesla um, is a project is a big opportunity zone area. There's part of Tesla's land, I think is maybe an opportunity zone. And, um, uh, but there's a big project called velocity crossing. Um, that's yep. an opportunity zone. The East Riverside corridor starting at Mentopolis, which is right where our project is. We're actually the first census track uh, or the first lot. I mean, any one, if we were just across the street on Mentopolis, we'd be outside the zone. Um, so that one is all, um, not, it's kind of an odd shaped one. Um, goes, I think it's the same one that all, all goes all the way up to Springdale. Uh, so some of the, if you, some of the projects over there, um, are opportunity zones too. Um, up by Samsung, you have an area and then, um, yeah, there's a few other ones way North Lamar has got some, so they're kind of sprinkled throughout the city. Absolutely. Um, and you know, the purpose of these for everybody listening, the government wants to redevelop areas that they think are downtrodden. So, you know, they give investors incentives to do so. Um, Corey, do you know the website where you can go see all of these opportunity zones? Yeah, I do. I mean, if, here, uh, I'd have to probably look it up real quick. But if, if you Google opportunity zone maps, you'll see a bunch of them. The best one is to actually go to um, the one put out by, um, I think it's by the Treasury or by HUD. I think there, there's a HUD map. Um, so I don't have the URL right in front of me, but it's, it's very easy to find. Uh, if you just Google opportunity zone, um, maps and, um, I think it's a HUD provided one that I've been using lately. And, you know, I know neither of us are experts on opportunity zones. Who do you recommend people talk to when they're looking to utilize this strategy and invest in opportunity zones? Well, it kind of depends if you are doing a pretty straight up deal, um, nothing tricky um just you're very clearly following the opportunity zone lines you're not approaching any gray areas then um you can you, you know really a low it's a combination of some a local attorney or, or local um you know and cpa if you're every if you're doing anything pretty big or you're setting up your own qualified opportunity funds um we like to use the insiders so there's a few firms we we use a firm called frost brown and todd and um they're really good there's um a great group snell and wilmer there's a guy named mark um blank and mark's last name but out of snell and wilmer in phoenix and he's definitely one of the insiders on opportunity zones there's another lady, man, gosh, what are they? It starts with a K. Uh, I don't know if you put podcast notes or something, but I could send it, send it yep, to you. We do. Um, yeah, there, um, I'm blanking which, which firm it is, but there's several really good firms that are, um, focused on opportunity zones. And there are some local in Austin, some local council that you can find that I knew were doing opportunity zones, but I do think it's, you want someone that, you know, if you call your, if you're setting up an entity and they go, what's an opportunity to like hang up wrong, wrong attorney. Yeah. Uh, they need to be pretty familiar with it. There are some, there's some rules on timing that I, in my example, I didn't talk about. Um, it, you can get into the weeds. That's an area where you can really get into the weeds, but in general, you kind of have six months 
to from the moment you have your capital gain to invest it in an opportunity zone project. But it has a lot of um, a lot of ways you can get a lot more time. And so if you're approaching a scenario where like, hey, gosh, I'm, I want to do this opportunity zone project, but I can't get it in with six months. There's a lot of workarounds and a lot of different ways that you can still do your deal. But that's when you're like, okay, I want to make sure I'm talking with someone that's kind of a DC insider. I mean, you you want someone that's really got their finger on the pulse of this. Um, it's very recent legislation. And so it's, um, and there are some gray areas where it's, the treasury hasn't made it very clear and they're subject to interpretation. And so that's when you want one of those bigger firms and they're expensive, <laughs> but it's, it's better than making a mistake. Sure. And absolutely with anything tax code related, you need to have experts on your team. Um, you don't want to try to figure out any of this stuff on your own. Yeah, it could be expensive, but it's probably going to save you a ton of money in the long run. Yeah, and I did just thought of another attorney. So the guy in Phoenix, his name is Mark Schultz, uh, Snell, uh, Snell and Wilmer. And then our guy is Chris Kaufman out of Frost, Brown, and Todd. And they're both opportunity zone experts. Um, and yeah, but there's, there's, there's quite a few others out there. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes for everybody. So Corey, you know, it sounds like you, you do a lot of stuff around Austin. Obviously you're from Austin, but you're sophisticated enough where you could figure out how to invest other places or really anywhere. Why do you choose to invest in Austin? That's a great question. Um, I mean, being in development, you really do need some type of boots and boots on the ground. And, um, not to say we wouldn't buy assets in other places and we, we, we contemplate it, but, you know, we think, you know, right now in the market, um, development's attractive. I mean, you're seeing a lot of cap rate compression and in a way development is our way of getting into an asset at below cost. And it's just, uh, it's, it's hard to find deals out there buying things, buying just, um, existing, um, deals. It's super competitive, not to say they're not out there. It's just very competitive. And so being that we're here and we've got the in-house development experience and the economic drivers going in, in Austin, it's just a very natural, um, natural fit for us. Um, Austin is a very on the development side, especially on commercial development is pretty tricky. It's pretty arduous process depending on where you're at, but it's always pretty arduous just to get permits. And it requires a lot of, um, you know, um, core knowledge about what's going on and, and how to, how to do different things. There's a lot of gotchas or, you know, gosh, you, you know, if you look at this or this or this, there's a ton here. And so that would be, uh, there's other markets that are not as arduous. Um, you know, Houston, for instance, is, you know, um, you know, from from what I know, what, way more flexible, much, much easier development process. And so, um, you know, developing there for perhaps you don't need to be physically located here. You kind of need boots on the ground. And we see it even from the institutional players, institutional development players, you know, um, very large developers that want to move to Austin. It's not uncommon for them to, um, you know, try to co-develop with a local developer. It's just, it's, it's, it can be done. You see it. But it's, um, I think, wheels, or, or, boots on the ground uh, when developing in Austin is kind of uh, critical, and it's it's something that we're focused on. So those, uh, um, 
those are our main reasons for choosing Austin. And I mean, we feel lucky in that the market that we happen to live in, we think is one of the most exciting in the nation. And I think a lot of other capital sources do too. So um, somewhat happenstance, but we'll take it. <laughs> yeah. You just happen to luck out and be located in probably the hottest market in the country. Um, that's growing Pretty much. just like a weed and has been for decades. I think people forget that too. This growth didn't just start in 2020 when there seems to be a ton of press about Austin, but started a few decades ago. Um, a lot of people don't know Agreed. this. In 94, Austin just passed the 500,000 mark for the MSA. Now we're over 2 million. And that's, what, 26 years, 27 years? Yeah, it's, uh, I agree. Yeah, It's been, uh, since I've moved here, it's been pretty staggering. Um, it's been very fast growing city and um i don't know why i mean i know why i like it but it's kind of an interesting thing of uh you know why that is why that occurs i mean i don't i don't say that it's just one clear thing but um for whatever for you know one reason or another uh it's it's attracting a lot of companies and a lot of people yeah love it there's tons of reasons whether it be business friendly climate or the actual climate or just the flavor of Austin. There's just a reason for everybody to want to move here. Yep. Agreed. So Corey, um, I know we talked about why you invest in Austin, but what attracted you to real estate investing in general? Have you wanted to be part of GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, but just haven't hit that millionaire status yet? Well, now you can, not even being a millionaire, by joining our new program, GoBundance Emerge. My name's Jamie Gruber, creator of GoBundance Emerge and member of the GoBundance community, and now you can join. GoBundance.com slash emerge. GoBundance.com slash emerge. Use code Jordan for $100 off this 12-week goal-setting program and mastermind that'll propel you to being a whole-life millionaire. It's also a good question. I got into real estate investing when I was I was about to graduate college and I had actually just inherited a little bit of money. Um, you know, not a lot, but enough for a down payment on a home. And I was actually pretty <laughs> kind of uh, nerding out for a second. One of my things that I do in my probably started doing this maybe even in high school um, is, you know, you hear all those like um, radio promo things of, you know, come to this free seminar on real estate investing or stock investing or whatever it is. Well, I started going to those. I just randomly show up like pretty young <laughs> and um, not, and a lot of times, you know, they're always selling you some other thing, but they always like give you little nuggets of info. So I remember going to rich dad, poor dad one was pretty young and, um, some real estate ones and, uh, some stock investing ones, all on derivatives and calls and puts. And, stuff. and so it, it basically, I wouldn't learn that much of those things, but they would, they would just give you these little nuggets and then it would get me really curious. And then I'd go buy an options book or a real estate book. And like, it's pretty funny. I'm sitting in my shelf. I've got, uh, an investing in multifamily book that I bought, I mean, like in college or something, um, or maybe a little shortly thereafter. So, it, and it all kind of started by what just a natural curiosity, I think. And, um, so by the time I graduated college, I already kind of had somewhat understood the real estate game. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. Like I can buy this asset 
I only need to put give or take 20% of the money down. I'm going to get this really cheap financing. And my background's accounting. I was focusing on accounting. So I got the tax benefit of it. I'm like, I get to deduct the interest um, cheaper than the rent I'm paying. Like, I just like, this seems too good to be true kind of thing. And so I remember like, as I was graduating, I was like at school in Tucson, uh, faxing, <laughs> um, closing statements and stuff to Phoenix where I'd like bought my first condo. Um, didn't really know what I was doing, but knew enough. And just like this, you know, this, I think made sense. And so that kind of got me interested in investing. And once I did that, um, I, you know, it worked kind of as planned. And then my brother and I'd started buying rental properties. Um, I'd moved to Austin. I turned my, that condo into a, um, into a, uh, into a rental property side story on that. So I bought that condo for $200,000 or something. It was about 200,000 and, um, in Phoenix two years. I mean, this was, uh, 2002 probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. 2002 bought it for like 200,000, 2004, five, it went crazy. It was like worth 400,000. Um, and I was getting offers for that and I was in the process of moving to Austin and I was like, well, I'm not selling, I'm going to be like a millionaire in two more years. Like this thing's going to just keep doubling, uh, moved to Austin, converted as a rental drops from 400 to like 170,000. So now I'm like, it's now worth less. <laughs> I should have just sold and then rent it for a few more years. And then I think finally sold it for like 230,000. So it made, made a profit, but it was kind of a good lesson. And, uh, you know, I had a, especially cause I had lived in it for two years. I would have had a tax free, you know, 200 grand cap gain, um, you know, being two years out of college, that would have been pretty nice. But, um, it was kind of a funny thing, but even with that, it got me interested in investing and started buying investment property. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, you, you did the right thing and you held on until it made sense to sell uh, a lot of people. Well, I kind of did the, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I guess I could have sold at that. I mean, I wish I would have sold just right when the market got really high. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, when you miss it, you can, I mean, that's a good thing with real estate is if you, if you're paying your mortgage and, um, you're willing to hold on for a long period of time, not saying it doesn't happen, but it's kind of rare to lose money. You can kind of, you can, I mean, a couple of my early, you know, investment properties, I think we overpaid, but we did well just cause we were patient. We were willing to kind of wait out our mistake a little bit. Yeah, no, I think it's important to to point that out to people because it's, and you could probably speak to this a lot better than I have. So there's a feeling when you see the value of something you own go from, let's say 400,000 to 170,000 um, that you feel in the pit of your stomach. And it's easy when it's at 170,000 to say, I just have to get rid of it. It's gonna go to zero, even though you know in your head that can't happen. You know, but yeah. you say, hey, I gotta gotta cut my losses and go. And that's really the wrong yeah. thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's 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 I think both ways. I think it's wrong to get too excited, uh, you know, about paper money. It's you know, if you're if you know, if if 
you think it's gone up in value, I don't think you should change your investment. You know, let's say your personal residence in Austin. I mean, I think every Austin resident, anyone that owns a home in Austin right now, their home is way up in value than it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. I don't personally believe you should like change your any of your habits because of that and vice versa. Like in a year from now, if all of our properties are down, I don't really think we should change anything. I mean, unless, uh, unless you're trying to flip homes, uh, if you're in it for the long term, uh, I agree with you. I don't think you should let those short term ups and downs really affect too much of your behavior. Yeah. That's so much easier said than done though. You know, I, and yeah, like I said, I think you know a lot better than I have. I haven't owned any real estate that's changed drastically in value in a negative way, but I've owned other assets that have just, just changed drastically in value. And it's easy to think, man, I should, I should get rid of this. This is, this is no fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we try not to gamble. Like I think you get into those, if you're trying to time the market and not create any value, if you're trying to just buy things, not create any value in the asset you're in the real estate asset you're buying, you're not doing any value add at all. And you plan to sell in a short term. That's, that's, that's fine. But that's just, that's just, it's just gambling. Like don't like, which is, you know, it's, I like going to Vegas as much as the next guy. Like yeah. that's fun to do sometimes, but you better go in knowing that. Um, and if so, you know, it's not how I invest in real estate. I'm, we, we, I think that's how I started investing in real estate. I'm like, Oh, let's just buy this investment property. It'll pay my mortgage. But now we're trying to be more strategic. Like what's, what, what's our value add in this? Are we going to redevelop it? Um, is it a long-term hold? Which is fine. Like that's a great strategy. Hey, I'm going to hold this for 10 years. And I just be- really believe I've looked at the economics of this particular investment in the city and what's going on. And I think rents are going to keep going up and um, it doesn't, and, and I've got a great rate. I think that's a great strategy. But uh, if that's your strategy, then why should you really care if if year three into year 10 years, the property has gone up or down in value? I mean, the only reason you should care is if it's gone way up, you might want to refinance and, you know, deploy some of that capital and other investments. But other than that, like, I don't really think it should really affect behavior. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a, a lot of factors to think about, but um, I think really what you're saying is just you need to make sure that you have a solid strategy and you're not gambling or speculating when you're, because gambling or speculating is not investing. It's gambling. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody and, uh, you know, when they go to Vegas or nobody thinks they're investing when they go to Vegas. I'm sorry. Right. Right. I mean, like I, I, it's funny, like the, I've got friends and I haven't that have really gotten into, um, uh, crypto recently. And like, to me, I'm like, that seems cool. You make a lot of money, but that's straight up gambling right now. Like I do have one friend that's in it for the long term. I'm like, okay, he's got, you know, um, you know, he's got a strategy. Like, I don't think he's gambling, but the, you know, uh, otherwise it's just, yeah. Got to, got to call it what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So Corey, you've been in it for a while. You've done a bunch of deals. What's something you would tell a newer investor or somebody that's getting into, let's say development on ways to avoid a bad deal, or maybe some examples of a bad deal you've done and how you could have avoided that. 
Yeah, good question. I think if you're going to invest, one, I, I wouldn't recommend an offer just go out and do a development. I, I think it. I'd highly recommend tag along, maybe invest in someone else's development. Um, and as far as what to watch out for and things we've made mistakes on, which has been a lot, uh, a lot learning lessons. Um, I'd say the first thing to watch out for is like when I get a deal and someone sends me a deal, I don't, the first thing I look at is structure. Like I don't actually look at the underlying asset until I look at structure. Like structure is my go, no go. If it's a great deal, but it doesn't have a good investor, you know, limited partner, general partner structure, I'm out. Like, I don't care how good the deal is. I'm just out. Um, If there's not really good alignment there, um, if they're not doing something pretty typical, um, I'm out. And I mean, what I mean by that is your typical like syndicate structure, if you're a limited partner investor, limited partners and investor, and you want to invest in someone's real estate project, uh, that, that other person driving the investment is typically called a general partner. And what you'd like to see is the limited partners typically should get all of their money back before the general partner is participating in the profit. Uh, we call that a carry or a promote. Um, typically, they get all the, the investors should get all their money back and in some reasonable pref, pref, preferred return. Um, so, and usually that's six to nine percent, I think is pretty normal. So, I'd like to see okay, this is a three year investment. I'm investing $100,000. I want to see that I'm getting my money back six to nine percent preferred return. And then whatever's left over, there's some, there's some split with a bare minimum of 50% coming to me, the investor who took the financial risk. Um, and that'd be a bare minimum. Um, usually they're, you know, on bigger deals, it's more like 80, 20. Um, so that's my first thing. And, you know, I, I'm fine with the general partner developer, whoever getting some fees along the way, like you got to recognize they got to eat and feed their family, but they need to be really reasonable. Um, so reasonable fees, if any, I mean, some of the smaller deals, you see no fee deals and that's, that, that, you know, that's, that's kind of normal on a small, like if on a spec home that only takes a year, you would really expect a lot of fees. Um, uh, so they should be participating in the profit. So that's my first place. Like, does this structure make sense? And uh, are we aligned? Is the general partner and the limited partners aligned? Um, is this a typical deal structure? And then uh, if it passes that test, then I'm looking at, okay, do I believe in this investment? Like, okay, are they building... They're buying a you know value add. Does this make sense? Does their does their thinking make sense? So they're doing a spec home. Like, is this a good area? Do I think prices are you know going to continue? What are the tax implications? All those different things. But I always start with structure, and that's what I would advise if you're investing in someone else's deal. Um, you know, if you're just buying your own investment properties, that's not really a thing. You know, you're you're just you're the owner, um, and if you you know that's that's great too. So yeah, I love that. Um... I think before you, you before any of that, you need to learn how to read these documents. So if you get get a deal put in front of you, understand you know what Corey's talking about here. And there's all these sorts all sorts of resources that you can learn how to read a deal. Um, understand, hey, what what am I getting? What are they getting? How's this all set up? What are the the fees up front? You know, I think the the acquisition fee 
needs to be fair to me. That's a big one that stood out to me on a lot of them is, hey, they're getting a huge acquisition fee just for getting this deal done. And they should get something. It's a lot of work to put a deal together. But yeah, when somebody's getting... It needs to be reasonable. Yeah. When someone's getting seven figures plus just to put a deal together, it looks a little rough to me personally. Um, Depends on how big the deal is. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, learn how to read this stuff before you invest with other people. Yeah. Um, yep, I agree with that. Corey, what's one thing you think newer investors should know? So it could, doesn't have to be anything specific. It could be for passive investors. It could be for active investors, like somebody buying a, a duplex or a, a development of a new build. Um, what's one thing you would tell people to know before they start investing? Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing, and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Well, um, I think in real estate, um, I mean, definitely the structure that I was talking about is, is really important to understand that. And then I think the other thing is, is time horizon. Um, one, if, if someone, if you're investing with someone else, and they have some type of value add development angle, it's probably going to take longer than they think. It's just the nature of the beast. It just always seems to be, um, there's exceptions, uh, but, uh, things just, and everything seems to take a little longer than, than you think. Uh, if you're investing in yourself, I think it's kind of similar, um, you know, have a longer time horizon. I just, I, I think the more patient you are, um, the uh the better chances you have success with with real estate investing if you're just looking for for quick hits the quick flip of the home maybe that's just because that's not been my game um you know you can get them you can get them but um sometimes they i feel like the best ones it's not when you went out for that it was you, you had a longer term strategy or um and you sometimes get lucky um so I think be, being a little patient is good. I mean, I guess there's obvious exceptions to that. I mean, if we're, if you're doing a, a spec home, um, I'm not saying you should like just hold the spec home for, for, for rental if you're building a brand new home, but, um, I'm, I'm saying just have, have a little bit of, of go, go into it eyes wide open, um, knowing that things are probably going to take a little bit longer than what is being presented to you going in. I just find that to be true as uh, both um, uh, an investor and, um, you know, as a sponsor of deals, it just, you go, it's not that the, um, the sponsors, um, you know, ill-intended. I just think everything tends to take longer than everyone thinks. So we've had some where they, things went faster than, than expected, but yeah. Yeah. I'd say, just as a general rule, they take longer and cost more than you ever think they're going to, especially if you don't build in a buffer for the costs. And I think a lot of people you know, are optimistic when they start. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. When we started our, our spec home deal, it was it was kind of funny. Like maybe it was just the times, but it was over, you know, several years. We'd usually, you know, we had some deals where we met timing, but we usually miss timing by a little bit than from what we originally thought. 
Um, we would cost would be a little bit more than we thought, but then say, then we'd sell it for more than we thought. And I mean, we were, we thought we were equally conservative in all of them. And a lot of times they'd all offset, you know, and be fine. <laughs> but, um, I think the, from the investor's perspective, like putting, you know, kind of putting that hat on, um, if they go knowing that like, Hey, th- these are, and I don't think it's, um, you know, anyone's fault. It's just hard. Like there's a lot of unknowns with, you know, especially with these, with bigger projects, um, you know, a lot of stuff, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And, um, and so, uh, whenever I look at a pro forma, I mean, my joke is like the only thing I know about any pro forma is that it's not right. <laughs> like whatever, it's either going to be way better or it's either going to be better or it's going to be worse, but it's probably not going to be exactly what's presented right there. And I guess going in with that, um, flexibility, I, so I guess I'm, I don't think I'm just impatient. I'm just go, going with a little bit of flexibility. Things aren't going to go exactly as, as planned, but if you've got, um, especially if you have a longer time horizon, they, our experience has been, they, they tend to work out. Yeah. And I think, especially with what you do, a lot of that stuff's out of your control, like the, getting the city involved with development, you're at the mercy of everybody else. For sure. And we try to, you know, going on the sponsor side, we try to set expectations with our investors for that. You know, we're trying to not hold ourselves to such a firm timeline. I mean, I think when we first started our firm, we did, Hey, this is going to be done in 12 months and stuff, stuff happens. And so now we more try to prepare our investors and set their expectations. Like here's, here's what's, you know, we expect, but here's where it could go wrong and here's where it could take longer. And yeah, with, with Austin, you know, if we're getting going through permitting process on a deal, um, we, you know, we, we don't know that XYZ person is going to be super unresponsive and take a really long time to approve some aspect of our plan. And so we have to go in, um, knowing that, and I mean, we know the general range, you know, we know this is going to take a year to 18 months, let's say to permit. And, um, it falls within that range. It's just very hard to predict if something is going to, um, on, at least on the larger permitting process, what exact, when exactly it's going to happen. You have a general range that it'll, that it really should fit within. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's really important to understand that stuff when you're investing in somebody else's deal. It sounds like you guys set good expectations there, but um, when you're dealing with the city, who knows when they're going to get to it. Now, speaking yep. of that, what's your best advice for somebody looking to get started, even with smaller development here in Austin? Well, if you want to start with develop, start in, in development, I think. Um, so here's smaller development that's typically a spec home. That is, hey, we're going to buy a lot and build a home. Um, if, if in starting that business, I think the, there's a few questions that come to mind. Um, number one op choice is, okay, are you going to build it yourself or are you going to hire an outside um, general contractor? Um, do you have that expertise? Okay. So that's decision point number one. Um, and I, I think you can be successful either way. I think decision point number two is who is, do you have 
you know, a land use attorney or a develop, you know, I had a business partner that was very familiar with development. Do you have someone in or civil, uh, civil engineer, uh, do you have some combination of team members who are going to make sure that you don't do something stupid? And there's a lot of stupid things you can do. And often there's just so many, um, you know, you, you have this great plan, but there's a heritage tree on the lot and you can't cut it down. And you're, I mean, your, your whole design is just done or, there's certain things that are in certain watersheds where you go, oh, okay, I'm going to buy this lot and subdivide it and build two homes. No, you're not. I mean, the numbers won't work because when you subdivide it, there's rules in place that um, really hinder what you can develop on, on the project. Or we've, you know, there's different ones, different watersheds. There's a lot of, there's a lot of places where you can, um, you know, think that it's pretty basic, but you can get caught. And so you need that second set of eyes if you don't know where those gotchas are um, and, you know, involving the development, you know, there's a um, development assistance center, um, Austin's development assistance center where you can go and ask questions. And so that's, that's good. But I also think you need someone on your side that's your advocate that can just make sure that what you're about to do and what you want to do, you actually can do. Um, you just, you see that sometimes where someone bought a piece of land and, um, they're they're stuck they can't they can't do they can't execute so i think it's hey do i have the construction team in place um do i have that in place and then capital um you know am i, am I using my investment capital or we typically use bank financing and investor capital do i have those relationships and do i have that track record like the banks aren't going to just go give you a loan for your first development deal they're going to want to see someone on the team that has done that before. So, I mean, that all boils down to, um, to creating a team and, um, and, and making sure that you have those, those people in your network are going to, to find them. You need, you need capital sources. Um, you need construction expertise, you need development expertise and market knowledge. Um, this, even if you have all of those things, if you overpaid for your lot, it's not going to work. So, um, it's, it's, kind of all of those um, different things. That's why I say almost the best way is to tag along. I mean, what, it, the question is, what do you have to offer? Like if you, maybe you are a high net worth individual who wants to get into real estate development, but it's never done it. Well, you might have a great balance sheet. There might be some developer out there that would say, hey, I'll give you, you know, a piece of the general partnership and let you kind of be a fly on the wall. Um, if you'll sign the the bank guarantee with me, so you know how can you how can you kind of um, become become work your way into a deal and um, get to learn learn the business side by side. So yeah, I love that. Rather than um, starting, your your advice of partnering up with somebody is great. Are there any resources out there that you know of, like a book or a website or course where somebody mm-hmm. can learn more about development? Maybe not. I know because it's so different city to city, even just high level stuff. Yeah, I don't know that there really is. I mean, um, high level stuff. Uh, I just started reading. I haven't finished it, but um, there's a great. It seems like it's going to be a pretty good story. A bio of um, Trammell Crow, um, and uh, it, I mean, it was written quite a time ago. But a, a friend gave it to me and said it's a pretty good book. And I mean, that's uh, kind of a high level perspective of development. There's not that I've seen a, um, you know, how to develop book 
mm-hmm. um, that, you know, yeah, that I've used or, or, or read. There's your opportunity right there. You could write yeah. that book. Yeah, there maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I've gotten a lot of good recommendations about the Trammell Crow book, but I, I for the life of me, can't find it anywhere, actually. I don't think it's in oh, it's really? anymore. Oh, that could be. Yeah, I've got a copy, so I'm happy to uh, to lend it out once I finish it. I would love that. Uh, speaking of, what's your favorite business or mindset book, Corey? And maybe in the future, it'll be Trammell Crow's bio, but what is it right now? <laughs> you know, I'm really into the books that are focused on um, persistent behaviors that that eventually create kind of exponential um success so atomic habits i just read and i love that the slight edge compound effect those three books all have the same thing (laughs) you know in some way or another it is the um it's the uh you know do you want to make small if you can make small incremental improvements each day um they compound over time to really monumental um, differences. I love the story. And I think probably all three of the books make some reference to this of the, would you rather have a, you know, like a million dollars a day uh, for 30 days or a penny doubled every day for 30 days or 31 days. And um, the penny doubled ends up being more money. But the interesting thing about it is not that like lots of people kind of know that kind of trick the the penny doesn't become more money until like day 30 or day 31 and then it blows the million dollars and so that that's i think a big part of my mindset is like you got to just stay the course during those first 30 days uh and then it pays off and then so yeah atomic habits um slight edge and compound effect those the books and along that uh theme and genre uh, i really like yeah i love that uh compound effect is one of my favorite books um and yeah, I think just just keeping that in the front of your mind is really important with real estate too, because you know a few months may go by or even a few years may go by, and it feels like nothing's happening. And you know, over a long period of time, that's tremendous the effect you get from that. But you know, yeah. it's it's important to keep in mind too that I want to say before sixty five, Warren Buffett didn't have. In a, the number is going to escape me, but he didn't have 95% of the wealth he had now. So the majority sure. of his wealth has been made from 65 to whatever 90s he is now. But he started investing at like 11 years old. So yeah. he made a ton of money between then and 65. But from 65 on, just from compounding that larger amount of money, it's like the penny thing. you know. So it yeah. all adds up over time. Keep at it. Make sure you keep that in front of your head that if you're doing the right thing day after day after day, in 30 years, you're going to look back and say, man, I'm so glad I didn't quit a year in. I agree. Yep. Yep. That's, uh, that, I, I believe in that. And I think it's been kind of the theme of what we've been talking about uh, today is just that, that keeping at it and that, that patience. Absolutely. Love that stuff. Um, Corey, how can people get a hold of you or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, um, our website is rivercityus.com. 
Um, so that's a good put in our contact information there. Uh, my email is just Corey, C-O-R-Y at rivercityus.com. And so, yeah, you can track, track me down there. Awesome. And we'll have that all in the show notes for everybody listening. So scroll through the show notes. Corey's info will be there and their website will be there. Uh, rivercityus.com again for everybody listening. And Corey, last question here, probably the most important question we're going to ask all day is what's your favorite restaurant in Austin? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I do love Uchi. I mean, that is some really great food. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'd probably say Franklin's or Uchi. Okay. Um, Terry, Terry Black's is right there, too. I don't know. I'm going to, I guess I'll go to Uchi, but I love barbecue, too. Yeah, who doesn't love barbecue? I think between Franklin's and Terry Black's, too, you got to decide, do I want to wait in line for Franklin's or I just want to go to Terry Black's? Um, yeah, but Terry Black has got a pretty big line too now. Yeah. So I don't yeah. think you could, I don't know. I want to do a blind brisket tasting. I don't know that you could actually tell the difference between the two. It's really good. Really? Okay. Love it. All right. So everybody check out Franklin Barbecue, Terry Black's and Uchi. Make sure you've got a few there months go. before you go to Uchi. Uh, <laughs> but Corey, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate having you on today and hope we can talk here soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Corey.